we had the permitting folks come through to give us our occupancy permit the day before we opened. And they and we we had been scrambling because if we missed the winter season, nobody would have signed up because squash is predominantly an indoor winter sport. So if we hadn't opened in early January, we would have started missing our numbers right away. And so we had the construction company on the tightest timeline imaginable. The permitting people come in, failed. We'll be back in two weeks because we had a couple exposed wires where we forgot to put, you know, those little plastic caps. And I was like, two weeks. I, was, I said, we've got school buses showing up tomorrow with kids. I said, we'll, we'll be here all night. Is there any way you guys can come tomorrow? And he said, no. And I said, guys, I said, the kids are coming tomorrow. <laughs> And they did. They they were they worked with us, which which I you know which we were all grateful for. And we worked we worked overnight, uh, finished up. We had kids painting the hallways. You know, we were laying down flooring. I mean, the whole thing was just madness. And then to open up and be operating the next day. So I don't want to scare people away, but yeah, it was a hundred hour weeks for a year. Easy. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I talk with Barry Takesian, founder and executive director of Portland Community Squash, a nonprofit focused on community engagement and youth development in Portland, Maine. Over the past six years, Barrett has pioneered a business model that blends a for-profit division into a non-profit structure, and in 2017, was recognized as the United States Olympic Committee Development Coach of the Year for his work growing the sport of squash. Barrett and I talk about what it's like developing human capital as a precursor to financial capital, the entrepreneurial struggles of starting an untested business model from scratch, and his focus on sustaining PCS's mission for the next 100 years. Barrett Dekesian, welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. Really happy to have you here. Great to be here. So uh, I think this one's going to be a little bit different. It's definitely going to be a little bit different from all my other podcasts uh, because Portland Community Squash, of which you are a co-founder and executive director, is a, is a nonprofit. And I think a lot of people in the world of business see a clear line of demarcation between profit and nonprofit. For me, I see it more as a gray area where there's still a lot of business challenges associated with nonprofits. Just the bottom line is a little bit different and the goal is a little bit different, uh, but it's still a business. Uh, so before we get into that, I, wanted, I want you to give the, the elevator pitch of what Portland Community Squash is for everyone listening who might not know. Sure. Our, our goal, just like a private business wants to be the best, as a nonprofit here in Maine, we want to be the best college pathway program in the state. And uh, when we talk about college pathways, we're talking about an inch wide, a mile deep. So we work with a smaller group of students. There's about 100 students in our program, but we work with each student for at least 10 years. So when students come into our program, uh, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, they immediately get put into our curriculum, which is equal parts squash, wellness, and academic support. And we have a, a team of staff that works with our students year over year. We don't have to say goodbye to our students like teachers do at the end of the school year. Uh, we get to form these long-term relationships. And what makes our organization unique is that while we have this really proven and well thought out youth development model, we also have community access to our facilities. So we have about 300 families and adults that come in and use the facility when the kids aren't there. and uh, for us, that helps us deliver on our mission because it's a source of earned revenue, but even more so, it's a base of volunteers and donors and also a network for our students to access. So there's um, a lot of our students are going to be the first in their families to go to college, and we try to, we try to serve an intentionally diverse group of students, and we have these amazing resources to offer them um, a, a quick anecdote about why we're unique is we have a, a student named Matthew who wants to be a veterinarian and it, it takes me a 30, 
30-second email to connect Matthew with one of the best veterinarians in the city that happens to play squash at our facility. So right away, they have a common interest. They both have ownership over this over this uh, building that we've created. And uh, Matthew all of a sudden has a great mentor to help him through his high school development and, and towards his goal of being a veterinarian. So there's the elevator pitch about why we're creating something special at Portland Community Squash. Yeah, you, you said a lot there, and I'm, I'm going to come back to the very unique model of a, a nonprofit that has a revenue generating that's not donation generated uh, arm to it. Uh, I think that is very unique. It's very unique to certainly the community squash programs. But to take a step back for those that maybe aren't familiar with the community squash programs like a Squash Busters, like a City Squash, um, fair to say that uh, when you talk about uh, youth development, youth engagement, we're talking uh, big brothers, big sisters, but with a squash focus on the activity side, but otherwise same involvement in education, wellness, after school programs, stuff like that. Yeah, we fall under a cluster of programs that are almost like a second family. We, we use a lot of these youth development programs that are seeing a lot of success, identify their hook really quickly. For us, we use squash, and there's a lot of other great examples of what, where squash has been a great hook. But it could be figure skating, it could be theater, it could be debate club. You get a hook that gets students interested, and then what are the wraparound services that make a person successful? So we teach a healthy lifestyle, we teach academic excellence and work ethic, and we also um, show a very clear path through middle school, high school, and college matriculation and eventually graduation. So I think most people who haven't played squash or maybe they only tangentially know of squash, they're thinking squash, how is that a hook, right? Mm -hmm. Thought of as fairly elitist, fairly elitist sport. They might associate squash with one of those sports where you have to wear all whites and it's, it's a, it's a club type activity. So I think good opportunity now for, for you to take a, a take a step back, talk about, your relationship with squash and why you've you've chosen squash to be the hook for a purpose that definitely uh, is 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 far bigger than just squash. Yeah, squ- squash has that reputation just because the courts are expensive, and in this country, we've only prioritized building them on private schools and country clubs. But that's starting to change, uh, and in Portland. Uh, a, a tool like squash is great because it's an indoor sport. All you need is a pair of sneakers to play. We provide the rackets and, and everything else. And you can play it year round in, in, in a cold climate area. It's one of the best workouts uh, of any sport. It's, you know, lunging and sprinting around a court for an hour straight. So, um, and then lastly, you put a, put a racket and a ball in a kid's hand and tell them to hit it against the wall and they're going to love it. So, the sport's fun. It was something I was good at. And uh, our student retention rate would would uh, be proof in itself that it's been been a great hook for us. Sure. So let's take a let's take a journey through the start of Portland Community Squash because in a lot of ways your physical facility here in Portland is relatively new, but Portland Community Squash is not new, certainly from the the genesis of it in in your mind. So let's go back to all the way back, you graduate school, uh, you go work in business, selling insurance. Not a big fan of it, uh, but you did it well. You've had, you had a great story about selling insurance, uh, but you're volunteering at the YMCA locally, and that's really where, for you, the idea of Portland Community Squash starts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get to mentor and talk to college students and high school kids and uh, young adults all the time, and one of the one of the biggest things I emphasize is everyone needs a side hustle. I mean, you can you can be doing any job in this economy as long as you're doing something you're passionate about as your job or on the side. Um, good things are going to happen. So for me, I never I never let go of my passion of squash. I never let go of my passion of bringing people together and working with youth. And uh, that energy attracted people. Uh, to to the program I was running as a volunteer at the YMCA, and it, it inspired me to then go and work for a really successful youth development program in Lawrence, Massachusetts, um, and eventually to make the jump to uh, to pursue Portland Community Squash as a full time 
project. Yeah, so you, you say that sort of uh, matter-of-factly, but I think that the details around that are, are far more uh, drastic, right? So you say that you, you go work for Squash Busters in Lawrence from Portland, that's a 90-minute drive each way. Mm-hmm. And you're going there six days a week? Yeah. Six days a week to learn how successful youth development programs with a squash hook work so you can emulate aspects of those into a program that you want to start in Portland. Yeah. So, in a city that is very small. Yeah. And the, and the traditional models have really only been laid out in much bigger urban metro areas where there's bigger sources of, call it capital, call it wealth, to draw on to support a nonprofit like this. Exactly. So talk about some of the complexities associated with trying to bring a, a, a squashed youth development program to a city like Portland and how you address them. Yeah, you just, you just hit on both some challenges, but also opportunities of being in a smaller market. The, the challenge was exactly that. We didn't have any existing wealth around the sport in Portland. Um, the opportunity was that we didn't Back, have no courts in Portland. No, yeah, no regulation courts uh, in Portland. But the opportunity was that there was no established infrastructure that was separating a private, you know, people that would play at a private club uh, from students that might be in an urban squash program, from students that might play at their school. So those those segregated that segregated infrastructure didn't exist. So. What I did is I went and um, learned the heart, uh, or what I would call the the philanthropic heart of the sport, this this squash and education model in Lawrence, Massachusetts. But I also went on what you could call a vision quest, and I not only looked at and learned from Lawrence, but I visited fourteen other squash and education programs around the country. I also learned everything I could about every private club uh, in New England. And then also um, did a lot of research on high school and collegiate programs as well to see what do people like about those programs and why don't we just take the best part from all of those and do a mixed-use facility that would capture the positive energy from each one of those um, uses. And so that's where we started really seizing the opportunity of being able to create something new. And um, I'll jump ahead a little bit and just let you know that we're now, our model, even though we're a relatively new organization, our model is being shared with every, every uh, small and large city across the country where squash is starting to grow as this is the direction we should be growing this, uh, the sport and infrastructure that's inclusive and, um, and celebrates the best of our sport. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about that. I alluded to it earlier. Um, the, the model, the business model is unique, and that is not uh, just for nonprofits, it's, it's a unique business model. Period. Whether you're a for-profit business or a nonprofit, and you say it uh, in a way that that sounds easy, right? You you do all this research and all the different facets of squash, of youth engagement, of youth development, and you pilfer the best of all of them. So you know that sounds great, but what does that really mean? And and can you dive a little bit deeper in exactly what's unique about the PCS model and, and how you're able to implement it? Sure. Since we were doing something new, people didn't even know if it could be done legally. So we, I remember the, the first take, we had this great steering committee in the beginning before we even had a board and just people that were passionate about helping out on this project. And for a while it was looking like, okay, we have to do a, a for-profit side of the business that caters to the adults and people in the city that want to use the facility. And then we have to have a separate nonprofit for our, our youth-centered mission. And what we realized, um, and that was also from a strategic p- perspective too, because when we were going to go out and start raising money, we figured people would only want to give to an organization that served kids. But the, what we quickly found was that rather than apologizing for having a revenue arm of our organization, we realized that not only is it a means to being able to support our youth program, it improves our youth program as well. And inclusive communities that bring adults and youth together in a, in, a, in, in a positive, safe place is nothing to apologize for. So we quickly uh, talked about creating a diverse, inclusive community as being part of our mission. And the second it became part of our mission, all of a sudden we could think about bringing everything under one nonprofit umbrella. 
what did we give up by doing that? We uh, we couldn't we couldn't uh, raise money and give away equity in the business. So th- there are some models out there where we could have had people buy into the real estate and own some of our facility or own some of the business. So we had to raise a little bit more money being a nonprofit, but by doing it, every dollar our facility makes goes right back to our, our mission of being inclusive and, and supporting our students. And we're also in a much, we don't have, uh, we, we haven't, we don't have a lot of debt either now since we, we raised a little bit more money in our, in our, early years. So we're in a sustainable point where I know our, our organization is going to be in a positive financial position for the next 50 to 100 years. I have no doubt about it. So that, that financial position is something you don't hear a lot about in the nonprofit world. I think a lot of times it's thought of as, you know, you have your capital campaign, you have your annual campaign, and that offsets your operating budget. It's sort of, a, you know, every year you got to sort of rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. You think about it a little bit differently because you have this revenue arm, you have a physical facility, you have a, you know essentially a, a squash-oriented health club for adults and families. Um, was that so? It seems it seems obvious in retrospect, awesome hybrid model, but no one else did it before. So where where was the the turning point for you? Where was the aha moment of saying you know this is how we're going to be able to tackle it and it's going to be a better mousetrap? Ah. Uh... So you really you really hit on it right there. I remember sitting down with the president of the Squash and Education Alliance. This is this is the spokesperson for all 24 uh, squash and education programs across the country that have operated without a revenue component forever. And I remember pitching this idea sitting on a bench at a tournament and Tim turned to me and said, it's, it's too hard to walk that line of a, of a for-profit and a nonprofit at the same time. And I can absolutely understand where he was coming from because it is difficult to, to have every constituency represented. But in Portland, we, uh, we, we all shared that vision of walking the line and doing it together. So it's, it's not like one group was going to be fighting for court time over another. Everyone wanted uh, the organization to be successful. So I, could, I, I knew it would work in our market. And the fact that we've been able to do it successfully now, uh, yeah, we had to walk the line, but I think it's now inspired other people to see that, that it, it is possible. So talk about uh, what you had to go through just to get it started, because already... I'm picking up on just, you know, a ton of entrepreneurial grit and work that went in of not just researching all the different uh, constituencies in squash, but you have this, this Portland market that is both risk and opportunity, right? No squash courts, which you very eloquently turn into a positive for PCS because mm-hmm. it's sort of a blank slate. Um, before we press the record button, you were talking to me about those first hundred coffees, uh, you know, you started something and you had help, but you started something from total scratch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So walk me through what you had to go through in order just to to really open the doors of PCS at a physical facility. Sure. I'll I'll run through the timeline quickly, but it started with that steering committee I spoke to and we would have uh, a meeting once a week at Sebago Brewing Company in downtown Portland just to, what was important to us? What what was going to be the heart of the mission? Uh, what 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 assets did we have? So we had we early on we started shaping that vision, and and I was always passionate about improving that vision and taking input from the from the great people around me. Um, then the hundred coffees you allude to, we, when you don't have capital when you start a business or a nonprofit, you need to build the human capital and you need to do it quickly. So. When I was driving to Lawrence, Massachusetts every day to, to learn how to effectively run a program, I was also taking a coffee every morning in Portland and I'd get a drink when I got home from work with someone in, in the community as well. Just every, bringing, bringing a person into the mission and nonprofit work especially, that human capital piece, it gives you your momentum, your supporters, your volunteers, your spokespeople. Um, so building human capital and doing it quickly was extremely important. And the first two years, we were all out 
cultivating uh, in cultivation meetings and getting to know new people. I remember meeting our architects, uh, John and Joe and uh, at Sebago and, and, you know, they were excited about doing some pro bono work for us. And, you know, as, as a 22 year old kid at the time, I, I didn't even realize pro bono was a thing. Like someone would just offer professional services to a kid with an idea and, and to a mission and, and, uh, and then that just opened the floodgates. So got a hundred people on board and then started using really smart tactics that I saw from uh, that other programs were using things like peer to peer fundraisers. So arming those hundred people with great concise video to, to, uh, get our messaging and our mission out to a broader base. Um, uh, we, we call it peer to peer fundraising because there's typically an event and you raise money to participate in the event. So that allows people to bring in a little more money than they could on their own, but it also brings in more people to the organization. So our first peer-to-peer fundraiser, we uh, raised $65,000 and we we grew our list from 100 people to 300 people. And then the next year we had, we had used that money to build some pilot programs at the YMCA. I had been down in Lawrence learning a lot. Um, so we had some credibility. We said, let's do the event again. And, you know, we raised another 60,000 bucks, but this time we brought in, we got our mailing lists up to about a thousand. And after, after three years of grassroots building, we probably had $200,000 in the bank and uh, about 3000 people on our mailing list. And we were starting to look at buildings, which was getting our base really excited about our, the next phase of our organization. And then once we identified a great building, that's when I made the leap to, to pursue this full time. And I went into a, quickly into a multi-million dollar capital campaign, which is not something that I would recommend for most new nonprofits. But we had done such a great job at building the excitement around our story early that we were able to, to go out and execute um, based off of basically our slide deck. Yeah, so... Tons of corollaries there with more traditional startups, uh, but you're talking about a, a three-year runway where you are working full-time in Lawrence, 90, 90 minutes each way, taking a coffee in the morning, a drink in the afternoon, just pounding the pavement, trying to generate that interest to then knowing full well that for you, the end game is I need to raise two-ish million dollars so I can build a facility have enough in the bank for an operating budget to support a goal whose ultimate mission is to see a kid from entry into the program to college, potentially up to 14 years later. Yep. Talk about a slow play. Slow play. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And of course, it didn't really go as planned, right? So you, you're lining up the building, and I remember talking to you about that, and it was a local building here in Portland, cool spot, uh, and you were going to you were gonna sort of partner with them. So that gave you the confidence to quit your job. Uh, but then the bottom fell out. <laughs> right, right. Couple, honestly, a couple of days before we broke ground and started getting going on the project, we, you know, we, had, we had raised a bunch of money and had a lot of commitments. Um, but there's just so many things that go into uh, a mixed use development. And, and all along, we were trying to do this. Um, we were trying to do it uh, by putting a little bit less money in up front to be a tenant in a larger development. And then we were going to be paying rent every year. And I think at the end of the day, there's always going to be a higher economic use than a nonprofit squash and education facility. So, uh, you know, right after leaving my job, our, our first, uh, our first good bid at a building fell through and I had to call up all of our supporters and, and ask them if they wanted to stay on with us. And, every, and at this point, yeah, how much money had you raised? Probably about half a million. Half a million. Yeah. Okay. So en enough to give you confidence to start, but clearly not enough to actually do what you wanted to do. You right. knew you'd have to raise more money. Yeah. So that stress you out. Well, we quick we quickly realized that to be a tenant might not be feasible. So we were going to have to look raise more money. Yeah. So we might have to own, build, and develop, and and find the right space and build it out. And subcontractors are in high demand, and you know. Materials are expensive and land's hard to find and Portland real estate is is on the up. So, uh, yeah, it was a little bit daunting, but to be honest, uh, it just might be p part of my personality, but I woke up the next day and I, 
And my philosophy has always been just make the organization stronger every day. So the next day I woke up and I said, what do I have to do today? You know, I, I, uh, and is that, is that just tremendous optimism or are you too young to know really (laughs) what it was going to entail? So, you know, it was one of those, if I had known what it was going to take at the outset, I probably would have been, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it. This, the, the story I tell about that one is my, my dad told me to put a, a timeline on the project when I was first starting the project. You know, you give people a timeline and deadline and it makes people get things done. But for me, it's always been, listen, I'm, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep working until this thing happens. So uh, I, w- I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't stressed out. Uh, wasn't my optimism. Uh, you know, it was actually something that the developer said to me that, that really changed my mind, that put my mindset at ease. It was, it was, you know, sometimes you need, you needed that, we needed that first vision to get to our first half million. If we didn't have the vision, we never would have got raised that first half million dollars. And sure, we had a setback, but all of a sudden we were in such a stronger position than if we were starting from scratch. So you just, you use that first failure to leapfrog to the next, to the next goal. And, and for us, we ended up taking a bigger leap and having a, and having a raise. Uh, you know, we knew we were going to have to raise at least a million and a half. We, you know, we've, at this point, we've put about $2 million into our new facility and, but we're not paying rent now. Uh, we're in a much stronger financial position. We're able to serve more students uh, and give away more scholarships. So it worked out the way, uh, the best way it possibly could have. Um, Had that been the first iteration of the vision, do you think you would have been able to raise that first half million or would, have, would it have been a bridge too far? Hey, you know, we're gonna go from idea to owning a physical building and property. It's in an old synagogue. Yeah, we're I don't... gonna put in four courts. Those aren't cheap, right? Uh, and you know, trust me, like this is going to work. Portland, Portland's never had squash courts, right? Regulation squash courts open to the public. We're going to do that. We're going to start this youth development program. Portland's never had either of those, right? You know, trust me, I need two plus million dollars. Yeah, probably not, right? I mean, we maybe just with our our grit and perseverance, maybe maybe we would have been able to make it work, but uh, it it happened organically in the way, in the way it should have, and. And it happened because we just kept a good attitude and we kept everyone on board. We never lost momentum. And uh, that was that was the key. We also just had the right ingredients too. We had the right people. We had the right city. We had the right kids. We had the right economy. Um, so you, ha- you can't be naive to, to uh, your environment. You know, we were in a good environment and that's what gave us confidence. Uh, you know, the board was sitting there and we were about to sign a purchase and sale agreement on on uh, this beautiful synagogue that went back to the mids uh, into uh, back to 1955, and we're sitting there and signing a purchase and sale agreement that's agreeing to you know pay a, a million plus dollars for our, for the facility in six months time, and we have five hundred thousand dollars in. Uh, commitments raised, but that's not even all cash in the bank. We probably only had $200,000 cash in hand. So for our board to have enough confidence in our people to take that leap of faith, that just goes to show that we felt really confident in the environment that we were, the way we were positioned. And uh, it's it's very interesting you say that because my first podcast interview, Jordan Milne from Hard Short, mm. he was talking about going, making the leap from working in finance in New York uh, to being a craft distiller in Maine, a place he had never worked, a job he had never had. And he's like, you know, at some, at some point, I just needed to basically make, do something that was almost irreversible to commit me to it, mm. right? You had to sort of tie me to this. And for him, it was buying a $250,000 still. Mm. And he had 18 months until delivery. And that was sort of like what got him, got him going much like what your father said, you know, a deadline to work towards. It sounds like that's very similar. You were signing a purchase and sale six months away for a building that you couldn't afford. Right. And was that, was that motivation? Was that scary? Was it, was it just pure confidence? You know, well, the, the grassroots buildup that we've gotten so far, you know, we can do it. You know, it, it sounds freaky. Yeah, I, I think the key is just having good people around you that you trust. I'm sure Jordan had really good people that he trusted that were supporting him in making that leap. And uh, for us at Portland Community Squash, probably even more, right? Because we had 
3,000 people that were saying yes, and a board of directors that was very capable that was saying yes. So to make the jump with company is, is a lot more comforting than jumping alone. Don't do it alone, huh? Yeah. So talk about the, the fundraising process. It's a lot like sales. I've heard you talk about how you are sort of at your core a salesman at heart. Um, talk about that fundraising process, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, it takes a lot of people for sure, and you're raising a lot of money. Uh, but sort of talk about what you learned along the way of how to raise money and how to connect with people to get them to buy into this cause. Yeah, for, first lesson I learned is just perseverance. I mean, getting getting in the room sometimes takes five follow-ups, you know, <laughs> so never getting discouraged and following up. And I, I never walked into the room and someone was not happy that, that I was there to talk about making Portland a better place to live and grow up. People loved having that meeting. Um, and if I ever heard no, um, or if anyone on our development team heard no, it was just a matter of timing. I mean, no, I'm supporting these other great causes or no, I'm not in a position to give right now. I mean, all those, all those things are fine. But the other thing you learn when you're, when you're raising money is that in the same way that people invest in, in for-profit businesses, that they, they want to see an investment and the best kind of investment to make is, you know, you've put yourself in a position where you're, that you can give money to a charity. What's important to you? What, what do you want? What kind of difference do you want to see in your community? And then what are the best organizations that can realize that return on investment for you? So at, at Portland Community Swash, we, we thought that the uniqueness of having this a caring adult community, this great curriculum, these great kids, and, and this mixed-use facility was a great way to, to, to create a return on investment and creating opportunities for really deserving students. So, um, you know, to tell that story, any you know, almost anyone would want to contribute to that kind of vision. And, uh, and, and fortunately, um, you know, we found, we found a good amount of people in the state of Maine that wanted to help us realize that vision, but also some of the novelty of, of our, of our community squash model actually brought in money from all over the world. So 50% of our money came from out of state. And some of that even came internationally uh, from people that were really excited to see a new model. Um, so no ties to Maine. Yeah, right. In a lot of cases, no ties to Maine. Just excited about a new way of infusing squash into a community. Absolutely. And and so, you know, I, I, love, our, I love our model because of, uh, because of uh, what, it, what it means for our kids to be in our program. I also love our program because people love giving to, a new, to something new, to something innovative, to, to, to a group of people that's constantly challenging and pushing boundaries. And, and so uh, we did, we market ourselves. We are the first community squash and education facility in the country. And um, there, are, there are groups that have, that have been doing similar, similar work to us, but we really branded it. You know, we were strategic about being the first and that, that helped us in our fundraising efforts. So you talk about return on investment uh, and, and framing it in a nonprofit context. Uh, but earlier we talked about how really the end game for you, for PCS to really say, all right, we did it. At least the first iteration is very long dated, 10, 14 years out when that first person who starts in your program goes to college. So how do you, how do you talk to potential and I'll call them investors and relay that ROI when the, the R, the return is so far into the future? You know, I think I've learned a lot this year that people don't like giving to the numbers, they like giving to the stories. So we have great statistics. We, we track social emotional development, we track grades, we track fitness, we track squash level improvement, attendance, all of these things. And the more I put that in front of someone that wants to invest in our program, um, I think the more lost our mission gets. So we're now finally realizing, you know, we have these kids. First of all, we start early because when you start with a student early, they start viewing themselves as a squash player long term. You know, we all have things that we were exposed to early that define who we are. When we start with a student in high school, they, squash is something they do. They're not a squash player. When you start with a fourth grader and you put a racket in their hand, 
not only am I a squash player, but Portland Community Squash is my second home. So we have we have this stickiness with our students that allows us to tell their story year over year over year. And um, our students know their spokesmen and spokeswomen for our program. And they they have incredible, <laughs> incredible stories. So uh, I think the long term um the long-term relationships is beneficial for the students, but also for the supporters that can see the kids growing up and, and having these successes every day in our facility. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic between the, the metrics and the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's, I have to imagine there's a balance there. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and so where is that? Cause, and I, I want to tie this to a for-profit business because it's something that we talk about here at Chenmark a lot of, you, know, you can definitely get lost in data. You can get lost in the weeds. And uh, earlier on in the podcast, I talked to, to John Rooks of Rapport, who, that's a SaaS platform to quantify the environmental impact of company supply chains, very data heavy. Yeah. And one of the things that he talks about is data fetish, yeah. at, almost at all costs, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. which, is, which is the bad side of data, but there's obviously right. a good side. So can you talk about the balance between the metrics to make sure you are, you're on track and you're, you're on trend and you are serving the mission and but not losing that story, that mission, that heart. Yeah. So you can help me with this, but what is it? Microsoft BI or what's the business intelligence? Is it is that the dashboard that yep. kinda accumulates a lot of your data? Well, I was on TechCrunch, which uh, or TechSoup that gives away these SaaS systems to nonprofits and and I, I saw something about that and I was like, man, look at Imagine this dashboard, we can see student attendance on the great pie chart, and I can see that the social emotional development and the fitness development, and, and the, you know, I can overlap the demographics of our students with the academic performance and all this. So I definitely, I drank the Kool-Aid too at some point there. And I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to just dive in headfirst to data. Um, but at the end of the day, we've, 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 found the indicators that are actually important to us and we only use data that we can act on so we so do what, what are those so we do we we partnered with harvard to roll out a social emotional development uh, set of surveys called the holistic student assessment and the reason we do that we measure their uh, indicators for resilience relationships and school engagement and the reason we look at that data is because it, it gives us uh, strengths and weaknesses um, of each participant, and it, and we and the reason that's so important is we actually use that data to get to to uh, create mentor matches. So when we want when we're giving a student a mentor, we're hoping that mentor is with them for seven years, and if, and we want them to have some similar traits, but also to have complementary traits. So an adult might have uh, great peer know how to create great peer relationships, and that student might have peer relationships might be a, a, a difficulty area. That's that's an instance where we can actually use data, and we and we sit down and we look at those student profiles to make decisions for the organization. Same thing with attendance and behavior. We have uh, we track respect, effort, positivity in our practices because um, when those things are going well, it uh, all the the entire practice operates well. Um, so we want to reward that behavior. So we track it to know what's going on, and then students with great rep, which is our behavior indicator and great attendance, they get to go to, they get first choice to which tournaments they travel to on the weekends, which community service trips, which college visits. So we only track data that we can act on. And, uh, and we report that data out to our supporters. And then we overlay that with the stories of the kids, because that's, that's what's most important to us. And that's what resonates with our base. Yeah. So that that's, hundred percent true in for-profit businesses as well, focusing on the data that you can have an impact on that is actually a leading indicator and an influencer on, on outcomes that you care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, any examples of data or metrics that you found that you tracked originally, but you found were basically useless and you stopped? Absolutely. That's what I give the interns. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> so uh, we've, 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 uh, we ha- we have great backend software that allows us to dig into a lot of a lot of different data points and 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 just little things like mapping addresses and and uh, and trying to look at neighborhood trends on attendance and and things like that. But just going a little too deep 
anything that takes more than 45 minutes to pull uh, is probably not going to be pulled very often. So um, probably not very indicative of, I mean, you're finding correlations where there is no causation. Right, right. Yeah, I, I probably I can't think of the best anecdotes, but I'm sure I've I've wasted um, some time in my office um, chasing chasing data points and uh, but getting a, another another uh, on the same topic. We've spent a lot of time getting our financials to tell our organization's story as well. So we use kind of class codes to class out adult use adult. P&Ls versus student P&Ls, and we break it down by program, but it's taken some nuance and some critical thinking about our chart of accounts and our reporting so that outsiders can look at our financials on our 990 and our board can look at our financials and be able to see the whole organization operating with these different uses in the building. Um, so I don't take the financials lightly. You know, we, we spend a lot of time getting those just right, because a lot of decisions get made um, looking looking at our financials as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Obviously, financial is something that we look at all the time. It's, mm -hmm. it's the heart of uh, of a company, and I, it's not the be-all, end-all necessarily, but I, I am of the belief that uh, everything at some point hits a financial statement in some way. And if, mm -hmm. you're not, if you're not locked into how the business flows through to financials, then you're missing sort of a quantitative aspect of of the business that that is very helpful and especially as you start making decisions on those it's it's crucial to know how they're how they're made how they're prepared because you don't want to you don't want to infer something incorrectly exactly um, is that something that you focused on initially or is that something that you've learned that hey you know in order in order to understand my business more I need I need to be more financially savvy because you don't you don't necessarily have a finance background. Right. So when you start an organization, the financials are really easy because you're not making, there's not a lot of transaction. There, there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of charts of accounts. But as, as I, as we grew the business and we have an unbelievable treasurer that audits our work daily. Daily. <laughs> Basically as a volunteer, <laughs> which she, she's, she's an absolute rock star, but, um, when intricacies popped up for our organization, like all of a sudden our pay, you know, we had, we were paying employees that were, were working on multiple different programs. Now you got to bring out their things. payroll. Exactly. So now, you, now you, now you got to start. We, we never wanted to compromise being able to see the full story. So we had to learn the tricks to be able to do that. So creating the recurring journal entries to break up the, the wages and taxes under the correct expense accounts. Cause we never, we never wanted to compromise being able to see the full story through our financials. So as the, as the, uh, as our financials became a little bit more complicated, we just, we had to learn and um, be able to keep up with it. Because if you don't keep up with it, it can get to a point where it, you don't look at the the report because it's not telling you anything. Man, exactly. I love that. Yeah. So I, I see that a ton in the world of small business where financial is something that need to, that need to be created basically for tax time but otherwise it's not it's not a source of business intelligence and it's definitely not a source of proactive decision making or strategic decision making um, but to do what you've done the outcome of which you know listening on a podcast sounds great yeah I want that but takes a lot of investment right breaking out payroll into multiple different classes uh, that's that's a level of minutia that takes it takes investment it takes time it takes human capital right right yep it does. And all, and also just a little bit of foresight too. I mean, one of the smartest things I did was look to my peers at other organizations to see what they had done a couple of years ahead of me um, so that we weren't getting, so that I just, I had some general idea of, of where, you know, how things would progress for us as well. Sure. So uh, I want to, I want to talk about the beginning of PCS when you first opened your doors, your physical facility. So totally remember, different challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. I'd never managed before. All of a sudden, you know, we were going from a couple kids at the YMCA to we had buses full of kids from all of the local schools showing up. We were building demand. What's we had the order of magnitude change there. So a couple of kids at YMCA. Yeah. So, had your pilot program. That's how many kids? So probably 20. Right. You know, out of practice to now, all of a sudden we we're seeing 100 uh, a week, you know. And um, 
we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a staff. We had been all volunteers and pretty much entirely volunteers. So we were building a staff. We, you know, I had never managed. We didn't have a staff meeting for eight months. We just went, we showed up, we delivered the program. We invented the curriculum, you know, we, we were implementing curriculum. We were bringing on register. How, how did students register? We onboarded 200 members in our first year and that, and we were doing it all by paper. Way faster. You onboarded your first 200 members in like three months. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't I remember know. talking to you and yeah. freaking out about, hey, we need to get 200 members pretty quick for our right. business model to work. Right, exactly. And you hit that way ahead of projections. So we, we had we had put, we had created the demand. You know, we had been at the schools talking, this thing's opening. This is a program you, you want to be part of. And, and we had been setting up our pipeline of students. We had been talking to adults. So we had built the demand. But I had never executed onboarding members, onboarding kids, implementing curriculum. So it was great, man. It's like what you dream about the, you know, the the big sheets of paper on the wall and um, you know, a circle is an action item and a check mark means it's done and an X means you abandoned it. And we had transportation was a poster, registration was a poster, mission statement was a poster, uh employee handbook and policies was a was a poster you know all all of it and yeah it was everywhere you're you're this is this is awesome not to mention we were so the we, we uh we had the permitting folks come through to give us our occupancy permit the day before we opened and they and we we had been scrambling so we 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 had leading up to opening uh our 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 uh, construction firm, Bright Ryan, was in there. You know, we made a calendar. It was like the drywall has to be done on this day. The electrical has to be done on this day. Because if we missed the winter season, nobody would have signed up because squash is predominantly an indoor winter sport. So if we hadn't opened in early January, we would have started missing our numbers right away. And so we had the construction company on the tightest timeline imaginable. The permitting people come in, failed. We'll be back in two weeks because we had a couple exposed wires where we forgot to put, you know, those little plastic caps. And I was like, two weeks, I, was, I said, we've got school buses showing up tomorrow with kids. I said, we'll, we'll be here all night. Is there any way you guys can come tomorrow? And he said, no. And I said, guys, I said, the kids are coming tomorrow. <laughs> and they did, they, they, wor- they worked with us, which, which, I, you know, which we were all grateful for. And we worked, we worked overnight. Uh, finished up. We had kids painting the hallways. You know, we were laying down flooring. I mean, the whole thing was just madness. And then to open up and be operating the next day. So I don't want to scare people away, but yeah, it was a hundred hour weeks for a year. Easy. Nuts. Yeah, totally nuts. Great, great vignettes though. Uh, I love the, the posters up on the wall, uh, you know, emblematic of that sort of that gritty startup vibe. But, uh, for me, what I what I hear when you tell that is, at a very early stage, pretty much right off the bat, you realize the need to and started executing on institutionalizing the business. Mm-hmm. And when I when I evaluate small businesses, uh, on my end, it's it's for acquisition. The big thing that you look for is, you know, is there an institutionalization of the business, or is it just purely entrepreneurially run, mm. right? Mm. And you have enough grit and enough charisma and enough perseverance to basically have put it on your back and and worked with other people, but, you know, mm-hmm. executed. Yeah. But not in a way that would have been institutionalized to a point that other people could have come in and stepped in and taken some ownership of that off your shoulders and, and executed with you, right. uh, which I think is is unique. And was that a conscious decision was that something you pilfered from other groups? Mm. Was it just, no, nah, it just seemed like the right thing to do, so I did it? Because uh, it's not necessarily given that that's a, that's no, a route that companies go. It's not a given, and some of it was good guidance. I remember when we were trying to implement a customer relationship management tool, after we had gotten to, after we had had our 100 coffees, I quickly realized that an Excel spreadsheet wasn't gonna cut it, and these relationships needed to be preserved. So we rolled out Insightly, Google's customer relationship management tool, customized some of the custom fields to the information we were going to need to have. And, and I started saving notes of all my correspondence with all of our supporters, all of our vendors, uh, under their, 
under their profiles and all those are still preserved. So the relationships ha- are completely intact. And I've, I've, I've notated, you know, it's a big part of what I do all day is document my interactions. Um, so I know that there, you know, that someone could come into my role and, and know what, the, you know, be able to assume some of those relationships. So that, that was a big one. Um, but I'm really happy that people are still with us on this podcast to talk about the current phase that we're in now, which to your point is, is all about sustainability. I mean, that is all I think about now. We've, we finally feel, and our team feels like we've built something we're really proud of. And so how do we, how do we put in a formula that is evergreen? So, um, a big part of what I'm doing now, yeah, we had an employee handbook and everyone has an employee handbook, but I just read it the other day and it's talking about getting permission from your foreman before you go up the ladder. And I don't think that's applicable to our business. So I am deep into employee handbook, student protection plan, facility policies, insurance coverages, board handbook, um, transportation plans, all of this stuff, because I've, I've realized that um, a big part of sustainability is, is good policies. And for a 28-year-old to <clears throat> say that, it uh you know is not natural no but um i've 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 quickly realized that if you want to protect what you've built it's extremely important and and you have to it has to it has to come from every part of the organization so the board is serious about it i'm serious about it and our staff is serious about it too so um safety is a big part of that you know we don't grow our programs any faster than we know that we can support them on an annual basis because you know, there's corrections in the economy all the time. And the last thing I want to do is be pulling programs away from kids. So, uh, you know, we have that event. Uh, we have an event called the Coastal Challenge, which is our biggest annual fundraiser. And if I can't grow the Coastal Challenge um, and our, our development team can't grow the Coastal Challenge, we can't grow our youth programs. It's as simple as that because we just have to think sustainably. You know, our roof and our building, y- y- there's, there's probably... If you're, if you own, you know, we own a 13,000 square foot building, there's probably 80 to $120,000 of annual capital expenditures to keep a building like that in good shape. So, um, everything we do now, policies, software, uh, you know, partnerships with other organizations, we don't partner with an organization unless we know that they're going to be around in five years, because, um, you know, we want, like I said, the, long-term is important it's important we commit to our students for 10 years and and uh and we need to think long-term in all of our every initiative we roll out i love that you hit on uh topics that that we talk about a lot internally especially with our portfolio company ceos uh institutionalization of the business systems and processes that build the foundation that allow a company to scale efficiently and effectively sustainable growth right Mm -hmm. i say this to to our CEOs and to prospective sellers all the time of Chenmark's not the kind of kind of organization, kind of investment company that that really wants to pressure our companies into growing too fast because it's a great way to find yourself in a whole heap of hurt, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a little bit different than a lot of financially oriented people who say, you know, if I put a bigger growth number in this spreadsheet, it looks really good, right? But you don't really realize what has to, have to ha- what has to happen in order for an organization to scale that kind of quickly. Yeah. Um, so I just love that you're that you're hitting all this as a small organization, as a young organization, and as a nonprofit, I think that the stigma is that that stuff isn't, is intended to, mm-hmm. but, but it is, and you're deeply focused on it, which mm-hmm. is great to hear. Yeah. Uh, so tell me you're focused on sustainability now. Um, but sort of what's, what's the next iteration? What's the next iteration of growth for PCS? Yeah. So we have, uh, we have a very clear next step and, um, we, we probably have about 100, 120 kids in the program right now. And um, most of our students are in our, our baseline program, which is called our Junior Squash League, um, which is a great program. And for the students that are on scholarship, about 65% of those students are on scholarship there. And that's about a $1,000 annual scholarship to, to, to participate in that program. But we have a program now called Rally Portland, which is a life changer. And 
that's uh, individualized academic support. Um, it's a long-term mentor. It's weekend travel a couple times a month to get on college campuses at a young age. And um, and it's a seven-year commitment, basically, once, once you get um, accepted into that program. But when, every time we bump a student from our junior squash league up into Rally Portland, that kind of life-changing level of investment, you know, you're going from a $1,000 program to closer to a $6,000 program. So you're adding 5000 a year to your annual fund that you're going to have to fundraise. So right now we're at 12 students in that program. We'd like to be at 40 students in Rally Portland in the next four years. But, you know, you're adding $200,000 to your annual fund. So you, you uh, so as it, as a team, we know that's where we want to get, um, and um, it's you know it's gonna it's gonna take some strategic you know community building to get there. See, it sounds like you've touched on a couple of times. One of the constraints of PCS is was also one of its hallmarks is its hallmark in the beginning, which is your facility mm-hmm. for beautiful courts, tons of classroom space in a in a in a great old synagogue uh, in a great location in Portland. But at some point, you're not going to be able to to run more people through that facility. Uh, so how do you get, how do you think about scaling the physical infrastructure of Portland Community Squash? Is it yeah. other facilities in Portland? Is it Maine Community Squash? Is it Port Smith Community Squash? You know right. where where right. is that going? So I've I've also learned that the right answer is always in the collective and and. For a nonprofit organization, that, that collective decision making usually happens at the board level. So I'm sure we'll reach the right decision at our board. We have space to expand, but when when I, in terms of executing the vision we have set for ourselves and creating a sustainable um, program, we still have a lot of work to do, in my opinion, before before we expand. Uh, little things about just thinking sustainably about. Um, are our staff and are they being supportive and is it a place where that they can grow and, and, and feel happy? And, 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 uh, so I, I want to, I want to do more to, to support our staff, to put the right systems in place. Um, you know, I've got a, a quote for 20,000 bucks to do, uh, a, a camera system throughout the facility to make sure that, um, you know, everybody's protected. So there, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of incremental wins that are right, are right in front of us. And I'm not, um, I'm not in a rush to grow in terms of numbers. I think there's something beautiful about creating, uh, a, a positive culture of excellence that families and students can go through. And, you know, um, if, if we're meant to serve, 100 students and 200 families and we can do that great for a long time i think there's something great about that and uh if if we're in the best position to help more students and families in portland and we have you know we have the opportunity to do that in a smart way then i think the board will decide to to expand i'm not sure you know um lewiston or or booth bay or whatever might be next uh that's that's definitely not on my radar at the moment fair so uh, as the president of Portland Community Squash, um, a, a lot sort of, a lot of the, a lot of the buck stops with you. Uh, talk about, and I, and I know you have a team surrounding you, the board, you have volunteers, you have staff members, but as a 28 year old who is the president of this nonprofit, talk about the challenge of, of being a boss, being a manager of a business while also being, you know, effectively a lead salesman to to generate donation and contribution to the cause. Yeah, absolutely. I I I think the beauty of being able to manage at my age is that there are no illusions that I know the right answers. So, um, I j- I try to listen and be extremely approachable. Um, and people people have, you know, I I think most people that most times we reach a decision at Portland Community Squash, multiple people feel like they have input. Sometimes I move, just being young, I move a little too fast once in a while and I forget to tell the right people. You know, I remember I changed our charter of accounts and I got a phone call from our treasurer pretty quick because our, <laughs> our budget looked funny and 
Uh, Don't move my cheese. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, I make I make mistakes for, by being, you know, sometimes moving a little too quick. But, um, you know, I, having worked alone in the early years, being able being able to work with a team now is so much more enjoyable for me. And so I think the people around that I get to work with, you know, see how much fun I'm having being able to work on a team. And, um, you know, culture, culture too, just like positive energy in our building is, is what we're selling. It's, it's so crucial to our, our youth programs. Um, I, I'd, I'd hope that anyone that wants a lesson in um, like a positive corporate and work environment to come see a middle school squash practice at Portland Community Squash because we've just got we've got the energy and the values like done really well with that middle school program and and I think our our uh, staff has has a lot of that good um, culture work done same with our board same with our membership so I don't know if it's just that we have good people or that we we are very forward about talking about what our values are of respect, effort, positivity, inclusion. Maybe it's about being part of something that's bigger than ourselves. I don't know, but we just, we don't have a lot of the drama that you would expect from such a robust organization. Awesome. So I want to, I want to wrap up with a couple of questions that I ask everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one, very simple, short, sweet. What would you tell yourself five years ago? If you go back in time, what would you tell yourself? Well, my gut reaction, yeah, would, would that's why be, I didn't tell you these questions ahead of time. Yeah, my gut reaction would not to not say anything, so I didn't get my, so I didn't scare myself off. No. <laughs> uh, but don't tell your five year ago self what the road is going to look like. <laughs> no, yeah, um, I. What would I tell myself? Um, I would tell myself to, uh, man. I'm not sure, Palmer. I the think first I'm, answer is always, I'm, I'm almost always with, the best. That was, that is my answer, man. Yeah, don't I, say I, I wouldn't have. I, I'm an instinct player. I got to say that way. I'm an instinct player. Nice. Okay, next one. Uh, if I gave you four months where nothing else was going on, you could press this magic pause button where there were no issues, phone wasn't ringing, uh, no employees, no whatever. Uh, press the pause button for four months. How do you spend that time? PCS related. PCS related. Yeah, you can't take a vacation and go travel. No sabbatical. No. Uh, I, I would, I would go into the major markets and and tell our story and and uh, talk to people about the return on investment in um, Portland right now, because first of all, the dollar goes a lot further here than the major cities. We have incredible kids and. And, and a newfound diversity in our city that we haven't messed up yet. You know, um, we uh, we have the ability to do things right, um, starting with the opportunities we give our kids. And I I think if if I was focused for four months in the big cities, I think I could raise a couple million dollars and and put our organization in a in a in a really good long term position. Um, Calling a shot. I I know. A couple million but, bucks, four months. I know, but. I'm having too much fun working <laughs> with the kids. I got six weeks of summer camp starting in, in two weeks. And, and we've got college squash players coming from all over the country to coach our kids. And we have students and, and coaches coming from Egypt, which is the squash capital of the world, to be here. And um, Our kids are on such a roll right now and just love being in the building that um, I think right now that's the most important place for me to be is to, is to keep – um, supporting those efforts and and I think the money the money will come. So that's actually a good lead into the last question, which is I give you a million bucks, blank check, million bucks. Uh, well, I guess not blank check, million bucks. Uh, you have to invest back in a PCS. How are you allocating that that money? Is it a new facility? Is it just going right into the bank to support those forty rally Portland it's, kids? It's the intent. It's strengthening everything marginally. It's taking care of our employees a little bit better. It's having a little bit safer vans <laughs> to get the kids from school. It's about having maybe a little bit more staff support. Um, 
but we, we're still running lean. And there's, there's, not, there's not one area that you'd want to allocate more of that money to? One area? Uh, well, I'd like to put it in- A million dollars has to be pretty transformational. Yeah, yeah. Even though you could raise well, that in four months. I wouldn't spend it all at once. That's the point. It would go, <laughs> it would go into our money market and-, uh, and uh, But okay, if I had to make- a one-time investment. Yeah. There's there's uh there's $200,000 that need to go on the roof, so I'd put it into the roof and uh, I'd probably put solar on the roof too for another 150,000 cuz that would take care of our heat pumps which is costing us, you know, 1200 bucks a month for heat and AC right now, so that would be a long-term return. And uh, and then the rest of it our landscaping's terrible, so I'd hire Seabreeze and get them over there to uh, what a pitch, what to, a bug. Uh, yeah, to uh, to transform uh, the face of our building. We haven't done much work on the exterior, so um, yeah, it would be we. I mean, it would it would be looking sharp with a million bucks. So sure, all right, fair enough. Barrett Dekesian, thanks a lot for being on the show. Uh, really great to have you. I really appreciate the candor. Yeah, thanks a lot. Maybe you'll let me come back and interview about Chenmark because that's a <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing uh, organization you guys have built here as well. If you, if you can get me on the other side of the mic, sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Barrett. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's Chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, C-H-E-N Holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.